still love that intro. It's a great uh, intro. Isn't it? <laughs> uh, so uh, we are back after four months, five months. It's been it's been a while. I wasn't the last months? one November or December. I think. Oh no 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 no! It's it's much older than that. It's been. Oh, what? oh, so so the last book club has been. So yeah, we we've been on. We've we've had recordings since chapter four was. Man, I want to say it was like the summer or something. It's been a long time. Oh yeah, no, yeah, I think yeah, no. Are you, you're right. Yeah, it's been taking a long time. Yeah, you're completely correct. I was thinking of the last time um, me, you, and Caleb had a had a stream. Yeah, yeah, we did we correct. did a thing more recently, but no chapter. So, anyways, we are finally back to uh, to mm-hmm. cover the next chapter of Jacques Maritain's Degrees of Knowledge. Uh, this time it was entirely Bulge's fault that we're running so far behind. I had this read Absolutely. months ago, and then uh, yep. and then I and then then he read it, and then I'd forgotten it by then. And <laughs> and we yeah. both re and then it continued being my fault, and then we both had to reread it. <laughs> so I think we reread the chapter like twice or something. I think I've I think I've read it three times. I think that's right. Yeah, now. it's um, it's around that. I don't think I've read the entire chapter three times, but I've certainly read sections, which I've certainly reread three or four times. Yeah. Which I mean, I, I, as I think we'll both talk about, um, I think it, it deserved a re- at least a reread and possibly a second reread because it's it's just like everything else that Maritain has done so far. It's been very dense but very worthwhile to really dig into. Um, yeah. the, the one so, thing that I sort of keep coming back to, it's I'm happy. I love getting to do do this uh, the, our book club here and sort of condense down what is a very dense text, but we we can't really do it justice because we barely understand it after two readings so it's it's absolutely worth a look at some point if anyone is inclined to to lose themselves and and many many hours of their life in uh thomistic um philosophy yeah you also start noticing that a lot of maritan's arguments are closer to sketches of arguments he's more being expository as to the Thomistic system of epistemology and metaphysics than mm-hmm. he is a lot of the time making concrete arguments for it, but he's sketching them out. So like there will be, I think there was one art, like there is, I think a one page in this where he makes one argument for an ontological argument for God, I believe you could draw that out into like 20 pages if you were inclined to, to set out, to set everything out. And it's like very quick. You barely notice that he's actually making this argument because it's in the service of something else about the perception of the mind and being itself. Which is- yeah. And like everything else with Maritain, or with this book at least, is he's assuming that you have, you know, a, a doctorate level knowledge of um, Thomistic philosophy and, and Aristotelian philosophy. So something like the, the um, proofs of the existence of God, he assumes you just know in depth by the time you're reading this just like you should yeah. also know greek latin french german and <laughs> probably a it, little like hebrew as well it'd be correct to say that his target audience are the contemporary people he cites it as footnotes so yes <laughs> you know exactly. it's like Gargul lagrange it's the other uh scholastics and new scholastics of that period whom mm-hmm. he's discussing with because he does and not in this chapter but in other chapters and previous ones he does actually you know say disagree with them or agree with them, but modify one statement of theirs or whatever. So he's very much in conversation with those people. And if you don't know them or you're not aware of them, you're sort of missing something out mm-hmm. at the very least. 
So as a sort of a reminder overview, because again, it's been a couple of months and we've been doing a lot of things. Uh, the whole idea of degrees of knowledge, this is Maritain's magnum opus on epistemology. Uh, in the first half of the book, which we'll be concluding today, he goes over the degrees of rational knowledge. So this is philosophy and experimental science, starting with um, you know what epistemology is, how abstraction works, what science is, what um, what he calls critical realism or, or essentially Thomistic philosophy is. And then it gets into knowledge of sensible nature. And now finally, we are gonna be discussing metaphysical knowledge today. Um, and that will conclude rational knowledge. And then we will start with super rational knowledge. So things like mysticism, um, revelation, um, all these sorts of ideas. We'll start with part two in chapter six, the next time we do this book club in 2027 or whenever we get back around to it. Yeah, certainly uh, yeah, the next chapter is mystical experience and philosophy, if I remember correctly. It's dedicated to the Reverend Father Garigula Grange, which is possibly, probably also one of the people the tar who is part of the target audience <laughs> for this book. You know, the guy who wrote like 80 books on Thomistic philosophy, that guy, yeah. So it's, there's, you should read it yourself if you're so inclined. If not, well, I hope this helps uh, your curiosity about the contents of this book and Thomistic philosophy. Mm -hmm. And speaking of that, so again, this today we're doing chapter five, metaphysical knowledge. Uh, I think, as we noted beforehand, he, he likes to dedicate his chapters. This one, um, in the most romantic gesture imaginable, dedicated to his wife, Raisa Maritain. I've, I don't know what it says that you're, you're dedicating your, your chapter on metaphysics to your wife, but it seems, I don't know, they, they had an interesting relationship anyways. Yeah. I'm sure you it was very remember. loving. I believe they met in, uh, what's his name? Is it Henri Bergson? I believe it's some it's something Bergson's lectures Bergson, yeah. in metaphysics. I believe that's where they met. They met in one of his classrooms. So it's certainly it's appropriate, <laughs> certainly for their relationship. It's very it's very romantic to just them. I'm not sure another couple could pull this off. I don't think Edward Fazer or whatever could pull this one off. But you know, yeah, not nearly French enough. <laughs> not nearly French enough. Yeah, he doesn't get these. He doesn't understand these big sweeping romantic gestures of. Uh, <laughs> dedicating one chapter of it, not even the entire book, just one chapter of your book to your <laughs> wife. <laughs> Certainly an interesting way to go about things. Mm -hmm. Anyway, shall we begin or do we have any other preliminaries? I, th I think that's it. I think we can jump right into it. If you want to go yeah. ahead and start. First thing we have, of course, is going to be uh, more terminology because he loves at, um, either creating or modifying um, terms. But yeah, go ahead and jump right in. All right. So, uh, I, I took some notes for this one, so I'll be mostly following them. So in the first few pages, he kind of actually has a recap of, I believe, terminology introduced either last chapter or the chapter before, which is dianoetic, paranoetic, or ananoetic intellection. Uh, so going in order, dianoetic is in the intellection through which the nature or essence of something is attained through its sensible properties, usually. Or for its properties, I should say, but in corporeal natures, it's, you know, the sensible properties. One thing important to note about this is that, is that it is radial and not central. It is outside in, in a sense. It attains the essence by the signs it manifests. So dianoetic is when you, I suppose, when you actually grasp the essence of what something is, but through the signs it manifests because you, we're humans, our knowledge is mediated for our senses of the world. So you actually get the essence of like, let's say what an animal is, and then you get the essence of what a dog is, which is a specific kind of animal, and that's how you do it. But you never attain dogness in itself. 
because dogness is partly bound up in other pro is bound up in other properties or manifested through properties. So it's an indirect way to get knowledge, which is the best we can do with our senses. Paranoetic, which Mariton discussed uh, quite extensively last chapter, is what he called imperiological or imperial schematic knowledge last chapter. It is knowledge by substitute signs. It terminates in the signs themselves, not in nature. So basically this is, to Mariton, most of science uh, itself. So I think uh, specifically later on we'll see he talks a lot about, I believe, in chemistry. So atomic weight, um, I suppose valency uh, would also be one of those uh, characteristics. So he talks about all the characteristics that differentiate one atom or one compound from another and how they're not itself the nature of that atom or compound. They're just the manifestations of it. And that's where our knowledge of them stops. And I think if, if I, because one thing I wish he did more of, and I think he, he avoids it because it can be, you can get lost in the in the imagery sometimes, but the but giving concrete examples I think can be very helpful. So I th like like you mentioned, our our knowledge of the essence of an animal or of of dog or of man in particular. You know, we know the essence of man being a rational animal. We know that he would say dianoetically. You know, we 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 grasp that that um, we actually attain that essence completely. Like you said, through the sensible, you know, we, we know we know what man is because we see man, we see what he does, we see that he uses reason, we see that he is an animal that he has to eat, and all these sorts of things. But it, we we do fully grasp that essence, you know, and we can nicely put it as, as you know some little pithy man is a rational animal kind of thing. When you go to like you said, sort of more scientific things, more imperiological things, you know, what is the, what is the essence of copper? What is the essence of um, uh, an electron what is the essence of mass what is the essence mm -hmm. of charge you know what, what can you say about copper well you can you can sort of give the laundry list of okay this is the atomic weight this is how many electrons it has this is the structure it forms this is how it reacts with other chemicals and you can you can sort of laundry list and you can give all this information that that kind of surrounds the the essence of copper but you, but never directly uh, you, you, again, you're, you're doing it through these substitute signs. Is instead of talking about the essence of copper, you you can't really do more than talk about its properties. And part of that's because copper isn't a whole lot. Like co copper is so much less than a man or an animal. Mm -hmm. There's 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 less of an essence there to to articulate. There is, I believe, some disagreement with actual uh, modern class. I believe David Oderberg does uh, make the claim together with, uh, I believe. This is partly with Kripke's argument from uh, modal existent or mod modal logic and uh, transuniversals that uh, H2O, for example, which I think would apply, you can extend the argument to copper, but I don't know it's a chemical compound formation. But H2O is the essence of water, rather. So that if there is something which works as water in another world, another planet, but it doesn't have the the chemical compound of H2O, if it isn't that chemical compound, it's not water. And then my question would be to Maraton, well, if we if we can sort of guarantee that if something is H2O, it has that compound, is it purely imperial schematic or is there some level of dianoetic intellection to it? So there's some wiggle room and some argument there to disagree with Maraton on whether um, 
something is just paranoetic or just dianoetic, or if there can possibly be a mixture of these two in our, under, in our chemical, even in our chemical or more scientific understanding of these uh, different substances. Mm-hmm. Which is an interesting argument, but we shouldn't waste too much time on it or else we'll just waste time on it. I, I will waste a little bit more time on it briefly. Though. Go ahead, go ahead. And, and just to extend the argument, because again, the it's with the things that are sensible to us, water, copper, wood, these sorts of things that are, that are, that we actually have you know, direct sense contact with, can certainly get closer to dianotic. If it's something like an electron, an atom, where again, when he's writing, he, he talks about atoms and electrons and, and sort of has the, the parenthetical, if they really exist, because we don't mm-hmm. really know at this point, we sort of have some guesses, that sort of thing. Um, and Realistically, we're still in the same boat now. Like we have a lot mm-hmm. of scientific information, but I've, I've never seen an electron. You've never seen an electron. <laughs> yes. You know, all the science sort of works out that yeah, okay, they probably do exist. They probably are there. But because we only know them, not even through our senses, we know them through the the readings that different instruments tell us that we think we know how those instruments work. And you you have so many layers between. Uh, your your own senses and even the properties of the thing, mm-hmm. and then the properties of the thing. Like you said, they sort of surround or, or um, uh, clothe the essence of it itself. That we're we're very far removed from the essence of those things that are that are um, beyond the sensible. And I say beyond yes. the sensible; they're still material, but like electrons, atoms, photons, you know, what, whatever. They're whatever these, beyond yeah. the limits of our senses, but they are corporeal and sensible. It's just that it, not to our senses, right? Right. And that's all yeah, – you'll mention it, but that's actually a good rule of thumb to think of something as paranoetic or dianoetic, at least for Maritan, is um, – you know, di- dianoetic would be something which we can probably know directly through our sense experience and then abstract from it. Paranoetic would encounter another degree of mediation. So it would be something which we use our senses to read a machine which has different senses, which might even read another machine possibly – which then that tells us about the sensible properties. And then that something like that oh, would be probably paranoetic. So that's a quick rule of thumb for you. All right, so uh, <laughs> enough digression. <laughs> yeah, ananoetic uh, is knowledge by analogy. Uh, so a quick example would be the five ways of St. Thomas, uh, where our knowledge of God is by analogy because we do not attain the essence of God. We do not attain the essence of being itself. We do not attain the essence of the universals as such, uh, but rather they are, we find them in all things, or rather through all things in the case of God, but in the case of beauty and goodness, we find them in all things, but in different ways. We never get the thing itself, but we can abstract from all of them and see that it is the same thing presented in different ways. So that be an, an example of knowledge by analogy. And we will, um, as we get deeper into, into discussing, oh, yes. we'll talk more about analogates and analog. Uh, we'll get to the Latin terms. Some of the, some of the Latin terms the Scholastic <laughs> uses, I, I, I swear they were, they were trolling non-Latin. <laughs> yeah. They were making sure the peasants could never read less. <laughs> that yeah. was, you know, that was part of their mission statement <laughs> somewhere. I had to be. Uh, <laughs> all right. So, First, we're going back to dianoetic, because Maritan wants to clarify a few things. So, quoting Maritan, it is fitting, moreover, to distinguish two modes of dianoetic intellection, 
according as it bears on substantial natures and on the realities which are the object of, of philosophy or on mathematical entities. So what he means is, well, you know, you can have dianoetic intellection of natures, of sensible natures, substantial natures, which are the objects of philosophy, or, you know, we could talk about mathematics, and that's a different way of perceiving things. And this is an important distinction because the philosophy of mathematics is quite a big sticking point for many different philosophies. I think, if I remember correctly, Kant had an extremely hard time justifying the reality of mathematics of his system, and a bunch of philosophers get really stumped on it when everything else fits neatly into their system. So this is an important point by Mariton. And his argument or his view is that mathematical objects are grasped, grasped dianoetically. They are not paranoetic. They are, quote, deciphered by means of a construction beginning with primary elements abstractively disengaged from experience. So translating Mariton here, he means that mathematics is an abstraction from, or at least the foundations of mathematics, not all of mathematics, like in the case of imaginary numbers, for example, but if the foundations of it, you start with abstracting from elements in existence, which he talked about in previous chapters, and he named this idea as praetor real. So you have one unit of a stone or one unit of, you know, whatever you want to say. You have one unit of, a, yeah, let's just say stone. You have one stone, and then you have two stones, and then you have three stones, and then you realize you can add the first and the second stone to make two stones, and the and you can add the first, second, and third stone to make free stones. And then, you know, you can, you start to real, and you abstract from that, you remove a stone element. So you don't say I have free stones. You say I just have free. That would be the abstraction. That you're removing the sensible elements. So they're praetor real because one, two, and three can exist, but they never manifest by themselves. They manifest in things with a nature. They're almost accidents of a collection of things or accidents or properties, which are interchangeable terms for Mariton of the Scholastics. So continuing, a construction via the imaginative intuition presents an outside, quote unquote, uh, by which the, uh, for the mind, by which the essence is attained. So when you construct this universe of just um, abstracted elements or accidents, this is an outside uh this you can this is we can pretend this is something outside your mind through which you investigate, which is part of the reason it's dianoetic because mathematics is radial, as he as Maritan said before. Uh, it goes outside in, and through the very basic concept of addition, you realize you can do subtraction and division and multiplication. And then, you know, you go on and on and on and on, and, you know, you can get the entire field of geometry just by studying lines, for example. Uh, and, then re and then quoting Maritan, it is reconstruction in regard to mathematical entities which are essences proper, possible real beings or praetor real, and construction in regard to those which are beings of reason founded on these essences. So the easiest being of reason rationale, uh, I think he calls it in the previous chapter, mm -hmm. which I can think of in mathematics, is imaginary numbers. Because you will not find the square root of minus one in nature anywhere. It's not there. But, you know, if you want to model nature, sometimes, when you, if you want to get paranoetic and do an imperial, an imperial scheme of nature, 
you might use the square root of minus one, or if you want to explore the nature of this, you know, imaginary or this construction, you can also do, you know, you can do complex analysis, you can do crazy stuff with it, but that's construction. And it's reconstruction when you abstract the sensible properties, and then you just deal with the abstracted elements, the ac accidents of a collection. Any comments before I move on? Uh, no, I think that's good. I want to, I want to get like, yeah, I want to, I want to get into the metaphysics. So I think mm -hmm. that's good. So, uh, he goes on to say, leaving mathematics a bit in page 217, that uh, the mind always goes beyond accidents by continually, continually relying on them. So I'm actually going to quote a full paragraph here at the end of page 217. As far as substantial essences are concerned, J. de Tonquedec was certainly right in noting against Husselot that when it is a question of thinking substances, even in the most imperfect fashion, the mind never stops short at the accidents. That would be contradictory. It always regards something beyond them. But on the other hand, a moment is never reached when the mind, having left the accidents behind, passes beyond and discovers the bare substance itself. It is by remaining attached to the accident that it finds the means of seeing beyond them. The mind always goes beyond the accidents, but by continually relying on them. So this is the essence of dianoetic intellection. You, you stay true to the accidents of something, and you see, in a sense, beyond them, but only by relying on them. You'd never get, again, you can, you know, anyone can identify dogs, but you never just see dogness itself around. You only get dogness by getting the collection of dogs and seeing their properties that makes them what they are and saying, well, they have something in common, and that something in common is dogness. And this, I think, is related to the point we've made in previous chapters. Is again, like you said, we are we are animals. We are physical. So our 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 knowledge comes first through the senses. We are we do not have angelic intellects. Like a, an angel would know the essence of something directly. It would just it would be connected to that essence. We have to go through the sensible. And so we can never, we, we never get, like, even if we can realize there is an essence there that the sensible is really revealing to us, we never, we can never leave that, that, I don't want to say crutch, because it's more than just a crutch. Mm -hmm. it's, it's the means by which we know the essence, but we can't leave it behind ever. Mm -hmm. Yes, very much so. And then I'm skipping a little ahead. He has some minor points, which I don't think are important to our discussion, uh, to page 219, where he sort of says, uh, I'll just read the I'll just read the first uh, paragraph of the scholastic digression, where mm -hmm. he's going to talk about parano uh, paranoetic intellection. There is a capital distinction imposed on the mind between two knowledges. There is, on the one hand, the knowledge of essences by signs or accidents, which manifests them, at least in their most universal notes, and this is dianoetic intellection. On the other hand, there's the knowledge of essences by the signs of which it will be a question below and which are known in place of the nature of themselves, which in this case remain inaccessible in their formal constitutive. And this is paranoetic intellection. So going to the next page, uh, I'll just, yeah, in the, but in the, but in the case of paranoetic intellection, the properties uh, in the strict sense of the word remain inaccessible. Clusters of sensible accidents, common accidents, grasped ex exclusively as observable or measurable are taken in their place, in the place of properties proper. Like the descriptive properties, this is Maritain's example, density, atomic weight, 
melting point, boiling point, spectrum of high frequency, etc., which serve to distinguish bodies in chemistry. So these are all real things about real substances, but they're not properties in the exact sense of the word. They're just measures of things that happen. They don't really lead you to see beyond them. They're just, a, a, again, an imperial schematic way of distinguishing between different things in chemistry. These descriptive characters are given the name properties, but the import of a name here is quite different and no more philosophical or ontological than that of the word substance in the use of chemists. They are at once exterior signs and masks of a veritable ontological properties. They are imperiological, substitutes for properties, properly so-called. The mind cannot decipher the intelligible in the sensible, and makes useful use of the sensible itself in order to circumscribe an intelligible core that escapes it. It is then that we say that the form is too immersed in the matter to fall within the grasp of our intelligence, which is what we were trying to get to before, that it's not transsensible, it's not beyond the senses, but it's too immersed in matter to fall within the grasp of our intellect. It is impossible by such properties to attain in any degree whatever the substantial nature in itself or in its formal constitutive. It is known not by signs which manifest it, but by the signs which hide it. This is what happens in paranoetic intellection. Any comments? Uh, hopefully that distinction is clear. Again, it's... A, it's... Uh, it is deep, and and it's it's interesting. He introduces these two just so he can contrast them later with ananoetic intellection, yes, um, which is going to be the the main object of metaphysics because mm -hmm. we're moving beyond. Whereas, like we said, dianoetic is is uh, in the sensible, paranoetic is in the sensible sort of through other means, and and ananoetic is going to be transsensible. Mm -hmm. um, so, because we're going to, have to at some point when we talk about metaphysics, we're going to we're going to have to leave the the sensible world. Yeah, he, this is very shortly coming up, but before that, he does have a poetic way of putting it, which is that the difference between dianoetic and paranoetic, which is that dianoetic intellection is a case in which the signs manifest more than hide. Paranoetic intellection is a case, case in which the signs hide more than manifest. He goes on to try and clarify a little bit here. To fix our terminology, let us say that in dianoetic intellection, substantial natures are to some degree known in themselves by signs, which are proper accidents, properties in the philosophical sense of the word. As for these properties themselves, they are known by other accidents, which are the operations, which is beyond the scope of our discussion. In paranoetic intellection, substances and their properties are known by signs and in signs. That is, all that we know of the substance is the signs which it has in paranoetic, which an interesting, this gets a little complicated because there are clearly like water. We clearly know more about it than just, um, you know, the basic chemistry, chemical uh, makeup of it. We know that, you know, that it hydrates us. We know what it tastes like. We know what it looks like to our eyes. We know what it feels like in our hands or our body. We know what it's like to swim or traverse in it. Um, but, but again, the, these, these are the mm -hmm. signs themselves that are, that, again, you've, what you've done is you've cataloged the, the signs. You've cataloged its properties. Mm -hmm. But um, in the proper sense of the word, they're not just um, the measurable accidents. They are things that have in our senses so we do dianoetically know what water is to some degree but also when you go to chemistry 
we it's just imperial schematic. So we can have one object where we consider it dianoetically, but the scientist, or at least the modern scientist, will only consider it perinoetically. Well, it's a question of how deep into its essence you can get it. And like mm -hmm. he says, because, what does he say? Um, it's too immersed uh, in the matter to be... Yeah, uh, too, too immersed in the matter. To is fall from the grasp of our intelligence. And it's it's because and that's I love that expression, um, mm -hmm. and it, like like we were saying earlier, it's it's because they sort of, I mean I I, I love talking like this, but it's amusing. They they be so much less. <laughs> yes, some, some, something, something like a man is, is high enough in beating. There is a unity to our beating that being that our essence is more intelligible, and in, I mean saying it's more intelligible, it is more. Whereas the essence of water. Uh, doesn't really be enough to have, it doesn't have that unity of of design that unity of purpose that a man does right there is there's is, there's is a unity to to our essence because everything you know flows naturally towards our end and the 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 ends of water and its and its level of being is so much lower that it's hard to like it's it's lost in the matter of it, yes. the, the the form doesn't really rise above in the way it does for a higher being like an like an animal or like a man. I mean, even biologically, we don't even need to get into the the metaphysics of the soul. I mean, water is part of our biological and chemical makeup. So, mm -hmm. and yet our biological makeup is already more than water. It interacts with water. It uses water. It has water. So, in that sense, just its complexity and the number of parts working in there and what it is is already more. Much like Let's say, you know, if someone subscribed to the theory of mind that animals are nothing but automatons or something, they would still have to say that, yeah, OK, animals are still more than something like a stone or, you know, just liquid water or something like that. There is more to them. There exist more. They're more there's more being to an animal, even if it is like a meat machine or whatever, mm -hmm. than uh, than water. Just in its biological and chemical makeup. There's more there to be grasped by the senses than in water, and more to be grasped by the intellect in particular. Yes, yes, and, yeah, in and, particular. But and since there's more to be grasped, the intellect, there's there is more of a definable essence, whereas the, the essences of those other things are so low that it's very hard for us to grasp them because it's so much less than than again the essence of an animal or of a man. Yeah, the example of meat machine also works here because if it is a meat machine, it is still a machine, so it has op You know, if if the uh, computer theory of mind is correct for animals, which I don't think it is, but just to extend the example, because it's way easier to discuss an actual theory of mind for animals, you know, it's still a machine that operates with very specific parameters. And I believe some insects probably are basically like meat machines, uh, where they're very, very dumb and they have very fixed operating parameters and they don't function outside them at all. And even then you have to say they exist more because they have operating parameters, which they sort of don't work and they don't work in a specific sense. That's being alive. And uh, by being alive, they excrete, they reproduce, um, they seek shelter. They do all these other things. They have societies, even if they are societies of meat machines, they have, they have to cohabit, they have to cooperate, they have, and they have to do this in very specific ways because of the way their bodies are, because they're insects or they're panthers or they're whatever. Uh, whatever animal you happen to consider, there's all these other things that is more information and data for our intellect to, to grasp than in, well, water flows downhill and it tastes nice, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Right. 
All right, we're good. We're good to pick up the pace. We're going. We, we, this happens to us every yeah. time as we end up getting. We go, a, we go half an hour. We go four pages. Go ahead. Yeah, there is a there is a point where uh, I, I do start going through pages very quickly in my notes. <laughs> uh, let me see. Word page. Yeah, now we're in the scholastic digression. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to the human intelligence and corporeal natures. Page is two twenty one. Uh, in this, my only highlight is in two twenty two and two twenty three which is the double movement of the soul into itself, which is um, how he's, which is Maritan talking about how we get to know ourselves. So uh, this is coming off a discussion about um, the, the proper, the, how proper it is for us to only know our limits of our knowledge, how they are proper to us, because we are, because spirit tends to spirit, pure spirit to pure spirit, spirit involved in the senses to spirit, which is the form of a body. We should understand that our intelligence, which from the fact of its union with the body, is naturally turned outwards and towards natures here below, must complete the great periphery of the knowledge of the world, precious, robust, and admirable, ultimately delusive, whether it be philosophical or experimental, to arrive finally at man and the soul. Then, by a double movement, it will penetrate within to take cognizance of the things of the soul and to know the works of man. By reflexive philosophy and by practical philosophy, ethical, cultural, aesthetical, and it will rise above its, itself to perceive the things of God, to pass on to metaphysics. Such is its natural itinerary, by reason of which the figure of Socrates stands forever at the human crossroads." Any comment on that before I finish this little section? Which go then ahead, we have go ahead and a, finish the section. Then we get a diagram if we want to talk about it. Well, we should at least show it. We should um, at least show it. But let us return, and I'm going to read probably point seven entire, but do stop me if you feel like it because it's a paragraph and a half. Sure. But let us return to the nature of corporeal things. The universe of a sensible real with its double valency, ontological and imperiological, dianoetic and paranoetic, is, we know, but the first degree of the knowledge we get of these natures, or the area of a lowest abstraction. A second area of intelligibility is that of the mathematic praetorial. Here the mind escapes into a world of entities which were first grasped in the bodies of nature, but immediately purified and reconstructed, and on which other entities, which are indifferently real or of reason, imaginary numbers, imaginary numbers sorry, will be endlessly constructed. This world frees us from the sensible real, but only because in it we sacrifice any order to existence. Imaginary numbers are not in nature. This is why philosophies, into which geometry provides the only entry, are doomed to idealism. They get forever stuck in the notion that there isn't a matter itself. But there is a... Th Go ahead. Oh, I was, I'm going to interrupt very briefly and just remind uh, listeners that back in chapter one or chapter two, he discusses discusses those those three degrees of abstraction. The first being uh, physics or physica, um, the second being mathematica, and the third, as I'll mention in a second, being metaphysica. But go ahead. Uh huh. But there is a third area of intelligibility, which makes us pass beyond the sensible without giving up the order to existence, and so it introduces us into the more real than the sensible real or into what funds the very reality of the latter. This is the area of a transsensible or of metaphysics, which follows immediately the area of a sensible real. And so, 
we finally arrive at metaphysics, and I have a few big paragraphs highlighted in this very introduction. Do we have <laughs> any preliminaries before? Do, do we, we want to show off? Do we want to show off his diagram oh, real quick? Yes. Uh, should I? How do I share a screen? Should can. I do it? If uh, you don't mind. Yeah, I can share a screen. Uh, how do I share a screen? Uh, I need wait. to. Do I delete? Window. You? Yeah. Well, I clicked it now. Okay. Okay. I suppose people could see go. it now. Can you see it? There we go. I think we got it up on screen. Let me zoom in a little. Yep. Yep. That's so as, um... <laughs> as a reminder to the viewers, if you're if you're watching this and you can see these diagrams, um, if you if you're not watching and you can't, uh, you're not you're not going to lose a lot of context because, as we've mentioned before, Maritain likes to draw these incredibly complex diagrams that are very clarifying. If you read like two pages of footnotes explaining the diagram in detail, they actually don't clarify anything whatsoever. I don't think I even, I'm trying to remember where he even, what footnote he discusses this figure in, because I never really saw much discussion of it and it never, yeah. I can we we can sort of ponder over the different things in here. Again, we have his transobjective and subjective intelligibilities, um, the realms of medical metaphysics, mathemat yep. mathematics, physics, dynamic intellection, analytic intellection. But uh, yeah, if if this clarifies everything for you, wonderful. Uh, please explain it to us in the comments. Yeah, it's it's like a Kandinsky art piece if you've ever seen those, where it's you know a lot of circles and lines, artfully and aesthetically arranged. You know, here in this case, it's only two colors, but still, it's um. <laughs> and he's also back to a transobjective, intelligible. I don't see transcense, trans uh, trans subjective here, but you know, I'm sure maybe if I uh, mathematic. Yeah, I need to turn my head around because there's something which are, is upside down, which I believe is mathematics and quantity. quantity yeah. yeah, yeah, I need to, to, to turn my head 90 degrees to be able to read that one. Uh, yeah, it's certainly a ride to um, try and decipher a Maritan diagram. It's not something for the pure, for the faint of heart, I should say. Uh, I think this is trying to describe the natural itinerary in picture form, which um, which I had just read, which is it starts with the sensible or physical reality. And you have paranoetic phenomena as a part of it. And then you have dianoetic intellection, which is both in the sensible and in the transsensible, as we'll see. You have the praetorial, which is a realm of mathematics. And then you go on, you move on to the right and to be fair, he put this diagram way too early, I now realize. Then you have being as being, which is the subject of our next discussion, uh, which is the abstraction of being, and that's metaphysics proper. And then, finally, you get to ananoetic intellection, which is re really when you move on to just metaphysics to theology. And you go to the trans-intelligible, and you get ananoetic intellection where it is beyond the grasp of the intellect itself it only knows these things by analogy whereas in metaphysics we can know these things uh through the signs they manifest so that's yes, a good well, that's a good a reading as i can give yeah i i i i appreciate the effort that goes into these diagrams and i'm sure they make perfect sense to Maritan and his wife and maybe no one else 
Yeah, and, and if he if if again if he spends enough time explaining them to you, they would they would probably make sense as well. But then they're not they're not really a useful tool if you have to be if it takes more words to explain them than he put in the chapter already. Yeah, if you're a professor in charge of giving a course on Thomistic epistemology, I don't recommend using this diagram. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a very didactic tool to put it uh to put it quite bluntly. All right, I'll stop sharing now. Perfect. Shall we get on to uh, the metaphysical intelligible? Yes. Um, all right. So I'm going to read like half of this big paragraph here. Sure. Uh, point eight. When things become the object of our intelligence, they do not merely deliver to us their determinate specific or generic nature, whether in itself or in, in an imperiological substitute. And this is the important sentence coming up. Before knowing that Peter is a man, I have already attained him as something, as a being. And this intelligible object being is not the privilege of one of the classes of things that the logician calls genus, species, or category. It is universally communicable. I find it everywhere, everywhere itself and everywhere varied. I cannot think of anything without positing it before my mind. It imbues everything. It is what the scholastics called a transcendental object of thought. And now, here's just a quick rule of thumb. If you have trouble, because this being is a weird word in English and there's lots of, it's prone to misunderstandings, you can, for the most part, not everywhere, I think, but for the most part, you can replace being with existence. So, so going back to what I think is the key sentence here, before knowing that Peter is a man, I have already attained him as something, as an existent, as something which possesses existence. That's the important part here. As a being is the more, is more, I think, of a correct translation of ente would be being, but you can also use existence here for the most part. Right. So, continuing on, it is being which is first known and into which every object of thought is resolved for the intellect, but nothing can be added to it from outside in order to differentiate it. Everything which differentiated comes from within it as one of its modes, presented to the mind by another concept. Sometimes it is a special mode of being which is opposed to another mode of being. That one subject has and another has not, and by which is manifested the infinite multiplicity of essences which divide being. Thus, in the movement of our thought, the object of concept being resorbs into itself the genera and species. Sometimes it is a mode coextensive of being, which every subject has, which has being, and which therefore constitutes an object of thought that is transcendental like itself. So he's saying that uh, one of the modes of being one of the ways we can consider being and see being is, as we'll see later on, like right now, really, is um, beauty or goodness. And it's coextensive with being because everywhere that being is, it is also there. So moving on to the other universals, the other transcendentals. Among these transcendentals, a trinity stands out. Being itself, then, in relation to mind, which alone can confront with equal amplitude, uh, being with equal amplitude, the true ontological, that is to say, being as the expression of a thought from which it emanates and as intelligible in itself to the extent that it is, and the good, metaphysical, that is to say, being as the term in which love can delight and is apt to move desire by the very reason that it is. From this, we see at once uh, 
From this, we see at once the value and the imperfection of our knowledge, and above all, of the idea of being itself in relation to that which it is. Which is. The first intelligible formality by which by be uh, the first intel oh, I'm lost already. The first intelligible formality by which that which is well hell of a sentence becomes object, and which is attained in the concept of being imbues everything real is capable of everything that is, and yet it is attained in the concept of being as already distinct only by a distinction of reason, so it's a virtual distinction, from the transcendental formalities attained by the idea of the one, the true, the good, etc., which which in that which is are identical with it. Another hell of a sentence. <laughs> which in that which is are identical with yes. it. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe you could have written that one better, but yes. Oh, sorry, one second. The cat's going to look crazy. Uh -huh. Cover for me. Yeah, no problem. So... What he's really just, okay, so this is kind of slightly impenetrable. Uh, what this really is, he's talking about the universals. So he's describing the different modes of being, which are coextensive. And by coextensive, he really means that wherever existence is, wherever being is, and I'm going to use these terms mostly interchangeably here, you find uh, these other things, which is to say that everywhere there, that something exists, that there is a nature, a sensible nature, or even a transcendental nature like that of angels, we will find goodness, beauty, truth, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And they are, in a sense, they are identical with that which is, but they are different ways of conceiving it. Right. This is the the nature of the transcendental. So, so something mm -hmm. something is to this something bees something exists to the same extent that it is true, or that it is intelligible, or that it is good. Um, and I, I remember when my, when I first sort of started studying classes, I think that was such a profound idea to me, especially with, with relates as it relates to the good, that the, the more something is, the, the better it is that the, the, as something is, is more, um, full of being mm -hmm. it, it, be, it, it, it at once automatically becomes more true. It becomes more good. It becomes more beautiful. Yes. Which is another part, which is an intuitive way to grasp the way that humans are um, more than water. For our, the, our previous argument that there's more to grasp with a human for our intellect than water is also part of the reason why a human being is better or more good, has more goodness to it than just the plain water. Mm -hmm. So these arguments are, I suppose, correlated, or at least, uh, you know, uh, related in some way. Mm -hmm. So the other thing, I think he mentions this slightly later. So if I'm stepping on a, on a, on a later quote, please stop me. But there's uh -huh. the, he sort of counteracts this idea because when we start talking about being, one of the the tendencies can be to make being just sort of the largest um, uh, genera. So it's it's the it's the category that just contains everything, mm -hmm. as opposed to which is incorrect. Because then mm -hmm. you it, then it actually has no essence to it. It has it has no being in being anymore. If it's just the biggest category, then there, then it's if everything is just a, a different type of being, and there's nothing more to being than that, then you've you have no more. Um, yeah, you have no, there's no essence to being anymore. Being doesn't do anything. It's just what everything is. So yes. being is more than that. It, it, it infuses all that is. Everything it that is, is exists mm -hmm. before it any, before it does anything else. Yes, it is trans-categorical. Mm -hmm. And this also relates to an, a, a later point of uh, 
philosophical ontological intuition, he calls it, which we'll get to quite soon. And in fact, the next paragraph I'll read on page 226 has very much to do with it. It's the first paragraph of that page where he's going to talk about university uh, of, he's going to basically talk about university and the nature of being and why it's not a, ca uh, a genera or a category. Even by the perception of the generic or specific nature, the intellect attains in the individual more than the individual itself. It attains a universal object of concept communicable to all individuals of the same species or of the same genus. And this is called univocal, since presented to the mind by a plurality of transobjective subjects and restored to them in judgments, it is purely and simply one and the same in the mind. So this would be something like, um, you know, uh, personhood or humanness. Uh, rational animal would be a universal because it is communicable to all individuals which are human. All individuals which are humans are rational animals. Dogness would be universal because all individuals which are dogs uh, possess it. Unum in multis. It is an invariant without actual multiplicity. So it doesn't vary. This is very important. Realized in several, and by that very fact, positing among them a community of essence. But in the perception of the transcendentals, we attain in a nature more than itself, an object of concept not only trans-individual, but trans-specific, trans-generic, trans-categorical as if in opening a blade of grass, one startled a bird greater than the world. Let us call such an object of concept super-universal. The scholastics call it analogous, so we're stepping into ananoetic knowledge here, that is to say, realized in diverse ways, but according to similar proportions in the diverse subjects in which it is found. It differs essentially, even as object of concept, from the universals. Not only because it has a greater amplitude, but also, and primarily, and this is what is most important, because it is not like them purely and simply one and the same in the mind, let us say monovalent, it is polyvalent. It envelops an actual multiplicity. The bird we spoke of a moment ago is at the same time a flock. So this is what makes it not a category, not a genera, not merely another universal amongst many it is polyvalent. It realizes itself differently. Nothing quite, nothing which exists quite exists in the same way, but also they all exist. Yes. <laughs> it's a funny way of putting it. It's, you know, we get into a lot of linguistic trouble here. Uh, but it's, I'll read a bit on. Hopefully, this clarifies a little bit. So Please. let us try and grasp the proper mystery of these transcendental objects. I look at a man and think, this is a being, or he exists. I grasp a certain determinate being in existence, which is finite, perishable, fleshly, spiritual, subject to time, and, as Monsieur Heidegger would say, subject to anguish, and a certain existence similarly qualified. So his existence is similarly qualified by these properties which he has. But the analogous object being, or existence, thus thought by me, outreaches this analogate. So it's not, it's not that, uh, for example, a human possesses the universal uh, humanness in complete form. If it is a rational animal, it has all the characteristics of a rational animal. You can't have more or less. You just are that thing. But existence 
or being, it goes beyond that. It outreaches the analogous. It outreaches the thing in which I find it in such a way that it will be found also intrinsically and properly in analogous which differ from man by their very being and their mode of existence. Everything that differentiates a stone from a man is a difference of being, just as everything that differentiates a man from a stone. If there are electrons, an electron is a being, finite, corporeal, and imperishable, subject to time, but, as Monsieur Heidegger would say, not to anguish. If there are angels, an angel is a being, finite, incorporeal, and superior to time. Everything which divides these beings from one another is the same being by which I find in each of them, but varied. I simply have to fix my attention on it to see that it is a, at once one and multiple. It would be it would be purely and simply one if its differentiations were not still itself, or to put it otherwise, if the analog presented to the mind made complete abstraction from its analogous. If I could think of being without thereby rendering present to my mind whether I am de facto explicitly aware or not of this is quite accidental, in essentially different ways, some of the others in which this object of concept is realizable outside of mind. It would be purely and simply multiple if it did not transcend its differentiations, its differences. Or to put it otherwise, if the analog presented to the mind made no abstractions from its analogates. In which case the word being would be purely equivocal and my thought would fly to pieces. I could no longer think Peter is a man and this color is green, but only ah, ah, ah. So what do you, <laughs> and this is actually a very important cup. This is, I think, the basis of metaphysics, really. This is when we really get to metaphysics as a study of being as being, being qua being. And so this is a quite important point to grasp, which is why I have this big quote right now. But, uh, Trying to think that, how to how do I translate this for our poor audience? All right, I think it, I think it's put very well, and it's just the sort of thing that you might need to sort of meditate on a little bit and really think about. I'm gonna I'm gonna take a lighter tone and just point one of the footnotes here that drove me absolutely crazy. I where he's talking, so it's he, gonna he, be new to me. Perfect. So he's talking <laughs> about when he talks about the, the, his use of the words analogous and analogate and analog. So <laughs> this is for clarity of expression. We reserve in this whole discussion the word analog for what the scholastics <laughs> called analogum analogens. <laughs> and we designate simply by the word analogate what they call analogum analogatum. Yep, I see it. Yeah, footnote 12. Yep, great, great stuff, Matt. <laughs> so yeah, the scholastics differentiated two concepts, analogum analogens and analogum analogatum. Hell of a Which, language, again, Latin, man. <laughs> it's, it's just Latin is evil. But yes, that, that's our analog and then the analogate. Um, yes, so I'm going to reemphasize the very key aspects of this passage. So being, so okay, basically being is polyvalent. It has multiple valencies, but it is still one. It is one and multiple. How is this possible? The very basic argument, which again, Myriton is only sketching the argument out. You could, there are, I'm sure St. Thomas Aquinas has written entire pages upon pages of this, and so have other Thomists explaining and arguing this in detail. But what he's saying is that, okay, so I'm going to back up a step and say how we determine something is different from itself, so that it's multiple different things, is that we see what the specific difference is. 
So what's the specific difference between uh, a- other animals and humans? It's rationality. So that's what makes uh, rational animals, humans, different from other animals. That's the specific difference, and that's why we are – I don't know if we'd be another species or genera for scholastics. I forget. But we'd be in another category at the very least. And, but the differentiation is not inanimality. It's another thing added that makes it different, added or subtracted in the case of animals, because you can also think of it that way. But in this case, in the case of being, the very differences in the modes of being are differences of being. It's not something added or subtracted. It's still being, but differently presented and differently itself. It's hard to comprehend, and you do need to meditate on this, but everything has ex- but the basic way I can put it is that everything has existence, but everything exists differently. Nothing is, and this is a little bit skipping ahead a little bit, but nothing is, of course, existence itself. It, nothing is just that which is. Everything is, everything which is is, obviously, but it is in a different way from everything else which is. Repeat is five times and you might get it. But that's the basic uh <laughs> that's the <laughs> basic way the, of getting it. The verb to be in the English language is so insufficient for discussing metaphysics, it's kind of absurd. So like, this I... is a this is a case where Latin just works much better when you can talk about ins and and enta and like we 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 need more verbs because we just use the same one for five different things in English and it gets very confusing very quickly. Yeah, it's kind of funny that he says being would be equivocal if it wasn't this, but linguistically, being absolutely is equivocal. <laughs> you know, it's like five different meanings. <laughs> so it absolutely is, but you know, I know what he's saying. Uh, yeah, but the trade-off is we don't have to say the words analogum analogans and analogum analogatum and flunk a test, a scholastic test, because we got them mixed up. So that's the that's the benefit here. Worth it. Absolutely worth it. All right, I'm skipping page 227. Do you have any comments on it? Um, I do not. No. All right. So, uh, um, this is yeah. Paragraph 20- 10 now? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I think, yeah, I'll read possibly half the first paragraph and then I'll skip to the third because, uh, I don't think the second is – we can read the second, but it's not that important. I can just sum it up in the sentence. Sure. So uh, point tenor. Uh, such objects, the universals, are transensible. And I made a little note here, but this is the object of metaphysics, that which is transensible. For though they are realized in the sensible in which we first grasp them, they are offered to the mind as transcending every genus in every category and as able to be realized in subjects of a wholly other essence – than those in which they are apprehended. It is extremely remarkable that being the first object attained by our mind and things, which cannot deceive us, since being the first, it cannot involve any construction affected by the mind, nor therefore the possibility of faulty composition, bears within itself the sign that beings of another order than the sensible are thinkable and possible. Maritan says, well, I know that you know determining whether transensible beings like angels exist is a whole other question, but it does op- but just our first intellectual grasping of an object already leaves that door open by our very first move of the intellect in understanding. Yes, which is an interesting uh, way, which is a very important 
for uh for for metaphysics to realize that even in our opening move we mm. there's a lot more in your philosophy than than in heaven than in nerf horatio there's heaven as well <laughs> which i deliberately omitted from that quote so third uh, paragraph go yep, ahead go ahead no please okay third paragraph uh which is yeah which is i believe Paramatan is going to explain how we get the principle of non-contradiction and the importance of ontological intuition. As the first object grasped by the intellect, being, it is clear that being is not known in the mirror of some other previously known object. Uh, it is attained in sensible things by dianoetic intellection, just as a generic or specific nature is known is known in itself by the property which reveals its essential difference. So an analog analogum analogans is known in itself by that one of its analogates analogum analogata which first falls under the senses our power of abstractive perception goes beyond the analogate itself which serves it as a means to grasp in its transcendence the analog of which it is only one of the possible realizations there is therefore an intellectual perception of being which being involved in the very act in the in every act of our intelligence, in fact, rules all our thoughts from the very beginning. And when this is disengaged for itself by the abstraction of a transensible, it constitutes our primordial philosophical intuition, without which we can no more acquire the science of metaphysical realities than a man born blind acquires the science of colors. In this metaphysical intuition, the principle of identity, being is not non-being every being is what it is, is not merely known in actu exercito and as in, an inescapable necessity for thought, its ontological necessity is itself seen. For it is not a logical principle, it is an ontological or metaphysical principle. It is the first law of being. And that is why, when it is transferred into the logical order, where it becomes the principle of non-contradiction, you cannot affirm and deny something simultaneously. It becomes the first law of thought. From similar intuitions bearing on the primary aspects of being and provoked in the mind by some sensible example, proceed the other metaphysical axioms, truths known of themselves by all or at least by the wise. It is true that many of those who profess to be philosophers preen themselves on putting these axioms in doubt, blissfully unaware that they are cutting off the limb on which they are sitting. They only prove that such intuitions are irreplaceable. Either you have them or you don't. Reasoning presupposes them. It can lead to them by clarifying the sense of the terms. It cannot substitute for them. So this is the very basics of uh it's a very funny way of saying metaphysics either you have the intuition for it or you don't and you need to stop doing it <laughs> well but also just the, the the these fundamental truths of metaphysics the, the 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 what he calls the first law of being is what becomes in logic the principle of non-contradiction it's it's mm -hmm. literally the the first thing that is true it is it, the, and and first in the sense of of causally first like it, it, it every, everything else is necessitated by it yes is if you if you if you if if it were not the case that being and non-being were distinct and that be, things are what they are um there would be like every there would be no rationality everything else falls apart and so when people try and try and um and you, you'll see this in in more modern philosophy sometimes people will try and 
undercut the principle of non-contradiction or try and start from other places or try and disprove it, that you literally end up with not realizing that to do any of the of the philosophizing you've done or trying to develop any logic, you were using non-contradiction. Yes, which actually goes back to uh, page 27, where he says, this: if you deny the principle of non-contradiction, that is, being is not non-being, you end up with saying being is equivocal, and therefore, quoting Maritan, I could no longer think Peter is a man and this is color is green, but only ah, ah, ah. Mm-hmm. You can only make, there's nothing to say. There's just yep. expression. And even then, there's not expression, because expression is at the same time something else, and not something else, and not itself. So, yeah, it's... Thought it's very falls apart good, entirely, yes. Yeah, it's a very good way also of introducing um, why logic works by not saying it's just, oh, it's just the laws of thought, and um, the laws of thought, you know, if you go the Kantian route, or at least one of the interpretations of Kant, where you go, well, you know, we can our mind conditions the world for us, and so therefore the laws of thought are phenomenal. They're only in our mind. They're not necessarily pertaining to the world in itself. Whereas Maritan is saying, no, 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 no. We get logic from the ontological intuition of things themselves. And that's how we start building logic and building our own way of thinking about things rationally and correctly. Yeah, we, we abstract the axioms from, from metaphysical truth. Which are, this is important as well, intuitive, at least at, in their mm-hmm. primary elements. You know, before yes. you can, deductions, before you get to the five ways, the five ways are, if they, actually, they actually start with empirical elements, you know, various change in the world i believe that's the first way uh that's an that's an empirically verifiable premise and it starts with the senses and then it goes beyond them and does a deduction but it starts with the intuition that there is change whereas if you're i forget if it's parmenides or heraclides i believe it's parmenides heraclides believed everything was changed right Uh, but parmenides it's like there is no change change is an illusion because it implies a contradiction and so if you don't have that intuition, like Parmenides didn't, then you're kind of stuck and you can never go beyond beyond the first step. Or you don't even get to step one, really. Or yeah. maybe you did and then you go back to step zero. Yeah, because I mean, you, 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 you had to have step one to have any thought to begin with. And yes. then you immediately undercut it and again, things fall, fall yeah, apart. Yeah, then you take a leap backwards for no real reason, basically. But and then the other thing that he says at the end, there, I think, is very clarifying. Saying, um, uh, he says, reasoning presupposes them, them being these these uh, first principles of of metaphysics. But he says it can lead to them by clarifying the sense of the terms, so that we can still we can still understand better, like he's doing here, what we mean by non contradiction, what these metaphysical realities are. We can they can be clarified for us through reason, but they mm-hmm. are still essential to reason in the first place. We might just not have realized it until we until we've done enough reasoning to reflect and be reflexive about okay, what did we have to know to do any reasoning in the first place? And he clarifies later on in the two in the following two paragraphs. I'm going to read the second one in excerpts from the third one here in page 229. So this paragraph is going to clarify how these first principles and these intuitions are seen. First principles are seen intellectually, quite otherwise than by empirical observation. I do not see a subject thing in which a predicate thing would be contained as in a box. I see that the intelligible constitution of one of these objects of thought cannot subsist if the other is not posited as implying it or as implied by it. This is not a simple observation as of a fact known by the senses. It is the intellection of necessity. So you have the intellect is it evolved immediately here it's not just the senses and then you deduce from that necessarily but it's immediately involved 
Uh, besides, first principles impose themselves absolutely in virtue of the notion of being itself. Their authority is so independent and so rooted in the pure intelligible, they are so far from being the result of a simple inductive generalization or of a priori forms destined to subsume the sensible, that sensible appearances are in some way disconcerted by them and lend themselves only with ill grace to illustrate the fashion in which they rule things. I affirm the principle of identity and I look at my face in a mirror. Already it has aged. It is no longer the same. This is actually a very good point that the empirical facts would probably, if you just go by a, by sensible fact, you might be tempted to kind of agree or at least sympathize a lot with Parmenides. And that might lead you astray if you take it beyond a poetic sense. Not Parmenides, sorry, Heraclitus, where nothing is the same. There is no one being. There is nothing univocal. It is always change. Nothing is itself. Because if, as Mariton says quite poetically, I affirm the principle of identity and I look at my face in the mirror, already it has aged, already it is no longer the same, because the world of the senses, the world in which we live, is constantly changing. There is no such thing as being still or as time standing, you know, quiet. It doesn't just stop. And so therefore, all we perceive, we perceive by changes. And so if you take that to if you don't stop to abstract and to see what makes these changes possible and to realize that one thing is changing but it is still one thing changing and not just change then you might be led astray they lend them uh, appearances lend themselves of ill grace to illustrate the fashion in which first principles rule things and finally these principles are analogous like being itself Every contingent being has a cause, but the object of thought cause is polyvalent like the object of thought being. So just a quick uh, explanation of this. Uh, Maritan assumes you know this, but cause uh, for the Aristotelians, there's four types of causation. It is polyvalent, but all of them are causes. So this is another way of trying to understand being itself if you're familiar with the basics of Aristotle's metaphysics and his solution to the problem of change. So Cause can be effective, it can be material, it can be formal, it can be final. So final is teleology. If a thing is not made to do something, if it does not have at least some function or purpose, it cannot really do anything. For example, if the heart was not made for beating, you can't really explain or say or understand why the heart is beating and pumping blood. If the lungs were not made for breathing, and that's not their intended purpose, then you why are they then you can't even really comprehend what they're doing because to even say they're doing this and to evaluate them as an object that's failing or succeeding you need teleology effective how do the lungs breathe how does the heart beat material what's the material that makes up the lungs how which is very tied in with the effective causation well they're all tied together but especially material and effective are very easy to see how they're uh how they're coextensive with each other how they're together and finally, formal, uh, which is what is the form of this thing? What is its uh, formal substance aside from the material? And which is very correlated with uh, the final causation. Uh, any comments? No, I think that, that sums it up. That sums up uh, both those ideas very nicely. All right. I think in page 230, I have the... Let me see. 
<laughs> yeah, the error of modern philosophers was my uh, note. Yeah, okay. 11. In one sense, there is nothing poorer than being as being. In order to perceive it, it is necessary to discard everything sensible and particular that cloaks it. Uh, there, uh, in another sense, it is the most consistent and steadfast notion. There is nothing... There is nothing in all that we can know which does not stem from it. It is this steadfastness which escapes those who consider being to be univocal and make of it a genus, the vastest and most naked of all. It would then be, as Hegel saw, at the confines of nothingness, and even indiscernible from nothingness, because it is, on the contrary, analogous. It is a consistent and differentiated object of thought with which a science can deal without can deal without by that very fact become hypertrophied in a panlogism destructive of essences. So this was the error of all the idealists, which is uh, if I think you touched on this earlier, uh, right. Marit, yeah, which is uh, if you kind of call being a genus, a category, it doesn't, it becomes nothing. There's nothing which you can say of it. There's nothing which you can speak of it. It becomes, it is at the confines of nothingness itself. It is indiscernible from it because you can't say anything about it. And the other thing which you can't say anything about is nothingness because it's nothing, because it's not there. It's not real. Right. So it becomes like this purely nominal nothing category uh, where you can never deal with things as they are because they're all, because it's it's hard to, uh, trying to put this into words of failing, but hopefully the audience can intuitively grasp this despite my uh, failures to express it. Right. And I, I think we, we talked about it a good bit. And I think hopefully it is, it is fairly clear at this point. Let me see. Is there anything else in page 230? If existence is anywhere found in a pure state without essence, which receives it, if there exists of whose essence is to exist, existence must there be identical with an absolutely infinite abyss of reality and perfection. So I'm going to try to explain this a little because it's the second, it's the basically the ending argument of the second paragraph of 230. It's the last sentence there. I'm trying to see where, uh, from where I can start reading where I don't just read the entire paragraph. Okay. After human Kant, a great many philosophers have refused all proper intelligibility to existence, seeing in it only an empty concept or a pragmatic feeling. It is difficult to come across a more radical error or one more offensive to the intellect. In the first place, the notions of existence and that of being has an absolutely primordial, primordial intelligible content. If existence as exercise does not offer to the mind any of our content to be apprehended, then existence as signified or represented, so that although the notion of an all-perfect necessarily has existence among the number of its perfections, I cannot conclude from that that this all-perfect must effectively exist. On the other hand, existence as represented is quite another thing for the mind than non-existence. There is much more in a hundred existing dollars than in a hundred possible dollars. But still more, existence is perfection par excellence. Being is perfection par excellence. And as it were, the seal of every other perfection. If it is true that an existing half dollar is worth more than a hundred simply possible dollars, and a living dog worth more than a dead lion, doubtless of itself it says only posito extra nihil, 
but it is the positing extra nihil beyond nothing of this or of that, or of a pot. How do I translate positive extra nihil? I believe nihil is nothing. Extra is outside. So positing outside of nothingness, I believe, is that what is uh, the correct translation, but someone who knows Latin will doubtlessly scold me for this. Um, and to posit outside nothingness, yeah, outside nothingness, a glance or a rose, a man or an angel, is something essentially diverse, since it is a very actuation of all the perfection of each of these essentially diverse subjects. Existence is itself varied and admits all the degrees of ontological intensity according to the essences which, re which receive it. If anywhere it is found in the pure state without an essence which receives it. In other words, if there exists something, a being whose essence is to exist, existence must there, in this being, be identical with an absolutely infinite abyss of reality and perfection. So that's... Uh, Maritain indirectly is talking about God, obviously. Yes. <laughs> and I think Which this is, is where, way to put it. This is where this chapter starts getting so beautiful because you start you start understanding and as a reminder, this is this is metaphysics. This is entirely rational thought. There is no there is no hint of revelation or mysticism here. This is just building what we know from what we like from from our first sex experiences and then abstracting that to being that we can understand that if there is a, a being whose essence is existence itself then it's an absolute abyss of reality and perfection and you start seeing you start understanding these these um i don't know if glorious is the right words but these these incredible things about the divine which i think is just, is, is so incredibly beautiful indeed now go ahead so I also love the nod earlier to the the ontological argument. I think I can't remember if you were on that one or not, but we had a discussion about how sort of ridiculous the ontological argument for the existence of God is when he says so that although the notion of an all perfect of a, the notion of an all perfect necessarily has existence among the number of its perfections, I cannot conclude from that that the this all perfect must effectively exist. And that would be the ontological argument to say that the, because an all perfect would have to exist, then the all perfect must exist. Yeah, I can actually – let me see if I can find it. I do actually – so ontological argument is, like, hilariously easy to uh, to, to say because it's, it's like, five – you could put it into, like, three sentences just because it's funny. So I'm going to try to find it real quick. Uh, where is it? Because it's in this same uh, – okay, here. Uh, I believe – let me see where it is because I, I remember writing about it. But uh, where is it? Because it's it's Saint Anselm. Let me see if I can find my notes. Found it, but it's, that's not the ontological argument. That's unfortunate. I really okay. Here, yeah, I found it. It's like free premises and like four sentences of argument. So God is that which is which nothing is greater than. God exists in the understanding, even of the fool who rejects the existence of God. And any object which exists both in understanding and reality is greater than an object which exists only in understanding. These are our premises. The argument, nothing greater, nothing, nothing, that which is, that which nothing is greater than exists only in understanding. But then, uh, nothing greater than is nothing greater than, because if something exists, it would be greater than this thing. 
Therefore, you get a reductio ad absurdum. Therefore, nothing greater, that which nothing is greater than exists in understanding and reality. Therefore, God exists. That's uh, that's the entire ontological argument. Yep. That's the what, in the monologion, I believe, from Saint Anselm. Right. Which I, th I think um, Saint Thomas Aquinas explicitly sort of refutes, and and uh, Maritain does here is that they're not. It's not actually a valiant argumentation. It's an interesting one, but it, it it has its flaws. There are there are better arguments for the existence of God. And then once you show, okay, yes, this all perfect does exist. As Meritim points here, yes, existence does have to be one of his um, one of his perfections because if he didn't exist, he would not be as perfect as anything that did exist. Yeah, I believe a problem with the ontological argument is more of I actually believe it's valid if you modify it because it's a problem with Anselm's presentation, where if you modify it with a few more, um, uh, as Maritain calls it, ontological intuitions, such that being is, and then you derive that being is univocal is not univocal, but it is um, analogous that it is one in multiple. You can actually do, I think, the ontological argument to show that this being is God. Or rather, mm -hmm. if you rely, the moment you do the prim the ontological, this primordial ontological intuition, you've already done the ontological argument. You just don't equate it with God. Right. So I think it's it's actually valid, but the way Anselm presents it is in the nerdiest, worst way possible that is open to refutation in how he right. words it. <laughs> <laughs> it sucks. <laughs> I think it's awful. But I think I think actually what is it? Godel actually had a pretty good ontological argument that uh it, it stresses me out because it's not scholastic but mm -hmm. it is i think valid I, I need to revisit it but it's it's much longer so it's not like one page or one page and a half like in the monologion or prosologion not, i forget yeah which. i'm not familiar i'll have, have to look for that because I'm, I'm familiar with some of girdle stuff and it's very good but i'm not familiar with his his version of the ontological argument there is a mass professor explaining it 20 minutes on youtube so if you just put godel ontological argument you'll find it and it's a, like a 20 minute video so it's nice. not long and it's very well, it's very, production value is pretty good for a guy who's on his porch and using like diagrams, PowerPoint diagrams. So right. it's pretty good. Um, <laughs> so let me see where we were. Um, yeah, page 231. I'm just going to read the last paragraph because the rest is, unless you have anything to comment on uh, this huge mega paragraph. I do uh, not know. Point 12, yeah. So, like mathematics, metaphysics emerges above time. It is not subject to time. It causes a universe of intelligibility other than that of the experimental sciences and of the philosophy of nature. To stand out in things and thereby, and thereby grasp a world of eternal truths, valid not for a particular moment of contingent realization, but for all possible existence. And then he, well, he's going to talk about a few differentiations here. So unlike the philosophy of nature, it has no need to find its terminus in the verifications of the sense in order to establish these truths which are superior to time. But unlike mathematics, it always looks in establishing these truths to subjects which exist or can exist. In short, it does not abstract from the order to existence. So this is the important point here. It does metaphysics. It doesn't abstract from the order of existence. In fact, it abstracts in a sense in the mind, but it doesn't abstract in reality. So, quick way to put this: for example, a number can't exist by itself. It must be a property of something. It has to be a unit of some nature, like uh, the number of angels, the number of people, the number of panthers, the number of dogs in the world, or whatever. Or a model for um, uh, for the stress that a bridge will suffer if X number of cars cross over and they weigh 
on average y kilograms or whatever. The way these things can't exist, but they exist uh, in other things as properties of them. Whereas, uh, but they don't exist by themselves. Whereas in metaphysics, you abstract in the mind to deal with being as being because you never feel, you never sense being just as being. So you abstract it in the mind, but in itself, metaphysics, be the study of being qua being, is the study of thi- of that which allows the contingent things to exist. So it is above time, it is true for all time, and it is not abstracted from existence because it is the very thing that makes existence possible. Metaphysics is, in a sense, the study of what makes existence possible is one of the ways to look at it. Which is why something can be, um, there can be something which is, uh, let's say, empirically or necessary by what we know of the contingent world. So let's say if I, uh, if I was in Paris at 12 p.m. tomorrow, I would have to, I would, couldn't also not be in, uh, let's say, Washington, D.C., 12 p.m. tomorrow. These are empirical contingencies. But, you know, as far as we know tomorrow, uh, I could be in anywhere, in any place. I could exist anywhere. This is metaphysics. But it's the study of that which makes the existence possible anywhere or anyhow. That's basically what I got from point 12. That's how I'd sum it up. And then as, as he points out shortly after that is, is it's, again, if we were to to include something like the Prater real or, the, or mathematical objects into metaphysics, things that don't actually exist, that would be, I think he says, beneath the dignity of metaphysics. Is, metaphysics is about what is, what you're being as being. So if you if you had things that were only beings of reason or, or things that, that weren't in, within contained within metaphysics, it would, you'd undermine the the foundations of metaphysics yes so i'm going to read the last part of this paragraph because it's relatively poetic mm-hmm. metaphysics descends to the actual existence of things in time and rises to the actual existence of things outside time it is not only because actual existence is the sign par excellence of the intrinsic possibility of existence, but also and especially because existence itself is, as we have said, the seal of all perfection. It cannot remain outside the field, the highest knowledge of being. Let's see. So I, I want to take a moment real quick. We, do, we should make a decision because we're an hour and a half in and we are not yet halfway through the chapter. I think we are almost, wait, there's 26 pages left, and I think we did like 18 pages or whatever. Something like that, right? Yeah. We can do a little bit more at least, I think. Let's see. To where ought we stop? How many pages do you think we can do? Because my notes are also, uh, after this, I skip to page 234. I skip 232 and 233. Let's try and get through this uh, sort of bigger section and get to 240 where it starts talking about the divine names and then we can pick up there next time. All right, uh, which should be, could be even next week if you're available because- Yep, I think we made that work. Yeah, I'll just take, I'll just take more notes because then we can extend that one out. Perfect, perfect. Uh, All right, so he's now going to talk about the metaphysical, transintelligible and ananoetic intellection. Now- I only my next note is from page 234 to 235, which is on pure spirits and angels. But did you have anything on pay on point or paragraph 13? So the, the main thing is he starts again. He, he goes into more detail about what he means by ananoetic intellection. 
um, that again, this is this is knowledge by analogy. As we have um, created beings, we can see things in them, and then from those we can we can infer. You know, and he starts talking in particular about God. So uh, let's see. Um, yeah, so just briefly a, a quote. He says, thus the divine perfections are attained by us in the perfections of created being, which by the analogy of being makes us pass to uncreated being, which no created mind can naturally attain in itself. So again, we, we, we can see, you know, things like the transcendentals. We can recognize being and goodness and truth in created things. And then by analogy, we can extend, understand what those things are like in being himself. Um, and again, this is the idea of analytic, analytic, intellection. Mm-hmm. But no, that's the only thing I want. I want to add. Yeah, in. yeah. I would just go to point fourteen, mm-hmm. where he makes a distinction here. Free degree. There are free degrees in the analytic intellection of things superior to man, which can be distinguished. Only the first two belong to metaphysics. The third is supernatural. And now he's going to talk about on pure spirits and angels, which. For most Catholics, ought be the same thing because I suppose we only really regard pure spirits as angels and demons, and demons are just fallen angels. Uh, though, you know, who knows? Maybe there's more. I don't know. Uh, that's up to that's up to God. Then not me. Um, right. So uh, it is impossible to say that the possible existence impossible to say that the possible existence of, <laughs> of pure spirits implies any contradiction. So there's no contradiction in saying that it's possible that angels, pure spirits exist. For the notions of spirit, knowledge, and love, far from implying existence in matter, of themselves imply immateriality. So knowledge is immaterial, love is immaterial, spirit is immaterial. So by themselves, we already know by our understanding of ourselves, this reflexive understanding that the natural itinerary, we eventually get back to ourselves. We have immaterial things and they exist. That pure spirits do exist. In fact, we have, abstracting from certitudes furnished by, furnished by revelation, some well-founded indications of a natural order, which if a random guy finds the senses, he might think Maritana is going to get to weird kooky conspiracy theory about angels act, <laughs> acting in the world or whatever. Because <laughs> he's explicitly, you know, taking out revelation, which is an interesting move on his part here. Uh, we are we we are spirits is one of the indications here substantially united to matter so we are spirits substantially united to matter we experience the life of the spirit in ourselves and that in us it is only an in, at an inferior and wretched degree of spirituality what is what is more reasonable than to think that such a life which cannot arise from the energies of the visible world knows in an invisible world superior degrees more in conformity with the co- consistency and vigor connoted by the idea of spirit since the course of terrestrial events is subject to a providential government which can modify it at each instance and i am here talking about the natural order itself leaving aside the case of miracles in such a way that the constellation of causes preparing the death of a certain indiv- of a certain invalid may be little by little diverted by the prayer of a free creature is it not fitting to think that the world of sensible causalities is not closed in itself but open to to the action of invisible assistance to whom the free decrees of immobile eternity are perceptible as time and rolls which is just a beautiful sentence uh, uh, go ahead i'll let you finish yeah i'm just going to read the rest of the paragraph these suitabilities of a philosophical order give in regard to the natural reason alone a high theoretical probability 
to the existence of separated forms. And forms here, for those who have forgotten or are unaware, form is spirit. That which is spirit is form. So the soul is the form of the body, and that is our spirit as well. On the other hand, certain sensible facts which are open to investigation, in spite of their relative rarity in the biographies of saints, in treatises on demonology, in the annals of spiritism, of clairvoyance, interesting that he'd cite clairvoyance, etc., appear as the vestige of this existence in the empirical world, which is as irrecusable as it is disconcerting. <laughs> <laughs> I, I find the last point interesting is like and yeah we, there's all this sort of evidence that maybe there's a spirit world which i like i think that's the part that would probably be be most mocked in the, by by people trying to pick this apart mm -hmm. i think it's it's still very true that there's you know okay a lot of things like okay what and like he mentions okay why why would we think prayer for something would work unless there is a spirit world or spirits that we can try and pray to um, when he talks about that the the death of a certain invalid may be little by little diverted by the prayer of a free creature, mm -hmm. but in the in the previous part really just sort of goes into Aquinas's argument about angels is that that we have an intellect it is barely an intellect like we like we were talking about earlier with with essences we only can and can have essences known to us through physically or yeah our, our sense experience of the properties and then abstracting the essence from those things. Whereas something that is sort of that that has intelligence in a in a purer way than we do would just know essences directly. It would it wouldn't have to it wouldn't have to go through the medium of the physical. It could just know an essence by itself. Yes. And Aquinas talks about okay, this is what an angel would be like because it, it doesn't have a physical form. It doesn't have a body. It is it is a separated form, like you said. It is it is a spirit. Um. And so there's there's it it doesn't have sort of the the um, encumbrance that a that a physical body entails, and so okay, if, if we have intelligence, we have intelligence. Man has intelligence. Man is a spirit, but it's clearly so limited. Isn't it reasonable mm -hmm. to think, okay, well, like, couldn't there also be a thing that has intelligence? This this amazing, um, and um, I'm trying to think how else he describe how else to describe it, but just, yeah, that it has it has this incredible uh, um, power. Mm -hmm. But but doesn't have it limited and constrained and and circumscribed in the way that man does. Yes. Yeah, the free of the action of invisible assistance to whom the first degrees of immobile eternity are perceptible as time unrolls. This is a very beautiful way of, of putting how the angels operate in our lives. Mm -hmm. And then the next paragraph actually makes a much stronger point about um the I suppose the nature not the nature, but why the importance of angels and the understandings of metaphysics. But even if this existence, that is the existence, of, the existence of angels and pure spirits, be taken as simply possible, metaphysics is not dispensed from considering its discoverable laws. He who has not meditated on the angels will never be a perfect metaphysician. The tract on the angels is a theological treatise in which St. Thomas depends on revealed enlightenment, but it virtually contains a purely metaphysical treatise concerning the ontological structure of immaterial subsistence and the natural life of a spirit detached from the constraints of our empirical world. So I actually quite agree with this because, especially in theory of mind, uh, I think Edward Fazer is a great book, a great beginner's guide to it, but uh, one of the... I guess most controversial arguments, I believe it's by Chalmers, the, the concept of the philosophical zombie. It's supposed to be a reductio ad absurdum 
But if the argument is correct, it actually reveals the possible existence of a philosophical zombie that is a something that has the appearance of a rational animal, acts exactly like a rational animal, is indistinguishable to the senses from a rational animal, but has no rationality. It is a meat computer. It has no perception. It has no qualia. It doesn't experience things. It doesn't do things. But if you hit it, it's going to say, ow. It's going to cry when it appears to be sad, but it has no quality. It doesn't actually experience these things. If this is correct, then, well, I clearly have qualia, and yet I behave indistinguishably from this. So there must be something else which differentiates me from a philosophical zombie. Therefore, I have an immaterial component because a philosophical zombie is purely material and qualia are immaterial. So even meditating on something which is supposed to be a being of reason is important for a metaphysician to discover something about real beings to find out what the specific difference might be between us and something else. So a philosophical zombie could exist. There could be a creation of God or whatever in another planet that is a philosophical zombie. But uh, the, the difference between us and this philosophical zombie would be qualia. It would be something immaterial, unavailable to the senses. Mm-hmm. I, I just also love the sentence that he who has not meditated on the angels will never be a perfect metaphysician. I yes, guess it's so good. So well yeah. said. I'm actually going <laughs> to highlight that one <laughs> so that I don't forget it when I inevitably reread this book 10 years. I also, also really want to, and I might try and pick, I'm going to do it anyways, but we might want to try and make it into something. I'll talk to Caleb, but I would love to, to do a reading on the tract on the angels. because I think I've it's... never even read a page. Have you read it? I don't think I've read the full thing. I've seen I've seen excerpts from it, but I need to I need to dig it up because I think it'd be a it'd be a fascinating one to do. Because again, we we've, we've talked about it a lot about St. Thomas um, dealing with the idea of angels, but I would love to. I think that'd be a fun one to do. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna mean, look into. He is Go called ahead. the Angelic Doctor, so I suppose <laughs> that's for a reason. There we go. He's probably uh, not wrong on angels. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that that might be that might be a reading in the not too distant future. How long is it? Do you know? If, that's it, ever... if, it, if it's, if it's, yeah, well, that, that'll be the determining factor, I suspect. <laughs> if it's, you know, enter in a sense, it's like, awesome, great. We can do it in like two or three streams, max. But, <laughs> but if it's, you know, summa theologiae, contra, summa contra gentilis, <laughs> then, you know, maybe, you know, we can read a few pages <laughs> and consider those. But, uh, you know, even if it's as long as de verite, we need to tread with a bit more caution. So my next note, and you're going to have to help me a bit here, is um, it's <laughs> all of page, pages 236 to 240, it talks of our knowledge of God by natural theology, which I believe is all of point 15 and yes. 16. And then he goes on to the divine name. So uh, here, yeah. How do we want to approach this? Because I haven't highlighted a specific passage here. So let me see. Um, Cause I, because I partly didn't highlight it because I didn't know what to discard here. Because all of 15 and 16 is fairly, I don't know if important, but it's all well-written and aids in the, and it builds on itself. So that I don't know where to jump in exactly. Yes, I'm not sure if there's a if there's a good quote to to go into. Maybe we can just sort of summarize the the points that he makes. I'm looking over it now. Um, I think it's also here where he makes one of the arguments for God, if I'm correct. Yeah, so that's sort of the first thing he goes into is he he goes through one essentially it's one of um one of Aquinas's five ways where it's it's sort of this argument from from intellection or from intelligibility, 
where he understands that he has the, so he puts himself in the shoes of a, of a theoretical philosopher and should, we, philosopher. should i read that then yeah sure let's just go ahead and start there yeah okay, maybe, 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 maybe that's maybe that second, all of point 15 <laughs> maybe, maybe start maybe start with the second paragraph yeah okay we could, we, we're starting with a philosopher who is thinking about thought yeah he's thinking about thought moreover this philosopher knows that his thought which is a mystery of vitality to the world of bodies, is at the same time a mystery of debility in itself, for it is subject to error and to time, to forgetfulness and to sleep, to distractions and to apathies. More still, in its very structure, it suffers conditions of servitude hardly worthy of thought. It is not transparent to itself. It beats against objects that remain obscure to it. It must needs divide, compose, construct, logically elaborate data that are not logical, but real. What need has an eye for logic? It only needs to be opened. Finally, by this very awareness of this servitude, our philosopher knows that thought taken in itself and in its pure formal line has exigencies of a transcendent order, the ultimate term of which he is able to determine. He has learned the true lesson of modern idealism. He has understood that the latter, born as it was of the scandal that man's thought is not pure thought, thought in itself, remains a marvelous witness to the privileges of pure thought. Absolutely pure thought is, for itself, its own object. It is absolute spontaneity. It is absolutely self-sufficient. For it to exist is but to think, and to think, not a thing, but the very act of thinking. If for it there are things, it receives nothing from them. It makes them. And so it is clear to our philosopher that he himself is not thought, thought in itself. He is not thought. He has thought. But, he ha but if he has it without being it, does he derive it from something other than himself, from a cause? The principle of causality does not arrive from a parceling out of the sensible, but from necessities intuitively grasped in being. From the moment that there are diverse things, no one suffices unto itself to exist. Otherwise, it would be the all. It is necessary, therefore, even though we have never seen one billiard ball bumping on another or become conscious of muscular effort, etc., that it depend on another without which it would not be and in which it finds its own sufficiency. In the case at hand, the philosopher may be said to experience the non-sufficiency of his own thought unto itself. Of course, he does not experience the insertion into it of the creative activity which it depends. But he cannot think this non-sufficiency unto itself of his own thought without knowing that his thought depends on another. It depends, that is to say, not only on the material contradictions, conditions sorry, that limit it from below, but on a certain unknown from which it holds its very actuality and its being as thought, and which is itself, consequently, thought or superthought. In me, with me, it causes my act of thought insofar as my thought has being. Thought of which my thought and would it remain my thought would be but a moment. So my thought would be a thought of this thought for a, for a thought itself for a moment. Then it would share in the weakness of my thought if it did, if it was my thought for a moment. And it, it, in its most multiplicity, and it would have to be said that it, that it has not its sufficiency in itself, that it is caused. 
itself an effect of another thought. I do not know if such an assumption has any meaning. But in any case, though an infinite series is certainly not impossible of itself, a regression to infinity is not possible here. For we are looking for a reason of being. And to say an infinite series is to say precisely no reason of being, each term going back to another endlessly. There must therefore be a thought which is thought, and which is the first cause of my thought. From, from it, it must be excluded absolutely any relation as a stuff or any material causality, whatever, with regard to my thought. It is a cause which compensates with its pure efficiency the whole being of my thought, and is absolutely separated in its essence from that same thought. It is the absolutely uncaused thought, capital T, itself, which causes in me and with me my act of thought. I already glimpsed the proper conditions of such thought, which has itself as its existence and as its object. Now I know these privileges are those of an existent real, absolutely self-sufficient for existing. It is pure act and therefore infinitely perfect. Knowing that it exists, that it exists, I deduce its infinite perfection from its aseity. It is by a palpable sophism that Kant claims that such a deduction depends implicitly on the ontological argument of Descartes and St. Anselm and lies in ruins with it. The ontological argument does not at all consist in the identification of existence a se and total perfection. It consists in the claim to deduce from the simple idea of the all-perfect its real existence. If I know, first of all, and in another way, starting from such a fact as the existence of my thought, that being a say, being itself, exists, I am obviously justified in concluding, without the least recourse to the ontological argument, that since the notion of a saity involves that of total perfection, and vice versa, this being a say, being itself, which exists, is effectively all perfect. So... Do you want to unpack it's, that? <laughs> it's a it's a lot to go through, but I think it is just it's it's so like I'm I'm always very moved by this. So what he is going through here is yes. again it's, it's essentially this this argument um, from intelligence that that we have thought that man has thought. He notices that thought is as we talked about previously is immaterial as the the intellect is not is not made up of things. Is it it's a, it's spirit? We are spirit in this sense. But we are not pure spirit, and we are not perfect spirit. Again, our our thought mm -hmm. doesn't really doesn't work like perfect thought would. It, it doesn't know some things. It can fail us from time to time. We can make errors. We can make mistakes. We don't really understand where it comes from. We so it's it's it, it, it is it is not perfect thought, but we mm -hmm. have thought. So if we have thought, where does that thought come from? Because we are not we aren't thought itself. So where do we get thought from? And we must get it from something that has that 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 actually has um, thought in those ways that we don't. And then, like a lot of the um, Thomas Aquinas's arguments, um, it, it relies on this idea: okay, if if we get it from somewhere, and then that gets from somewhere, we can't have this infinite regression. Is there must be a, there must be an ultimate cause of of our thought, which is not itself does not not itself have a, of another cause. So we, there must be some some perfect thought that is the source of thought that 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 um, we sort of participate in the thought of when we think, and I, and we end up using the word thought and think over and over again seven times mm -hmm. in the same sentence. So it gets a little little tangled. Yeah, yeah you can also substitute spirit because uh, that's what the idealists do. What Hegel did, he substituted spirit for thought, which in a sense works because it's the, I think Maritana is not just saying what the act of thinking or intellection he's talking about the entire immater immaterial aspect of your being your spirit and, your form 
And I, th- I think in German it's essentially the same word. Like you say Geist for either one of them. Oh, okay. That's why it's translated as spirit. That makes sense. I, I wasn't aware. I think I think that's the case. I mean, in German, you, they like. I think they, they like in, in English. They are very two very distinct concepts. In German, you can use the one word. So thought and, and or mind and spirit are there. There's they're both being Geist in German. So for someone like Hegel, it ends up being a little bit more confusing. That um, makes sense. Okay. But then so we get this regression to to perfect thought. It's, it's thought himself to to perfect um, intellection and inte- or perfect intelligence that that is thought and thinks perfectly and it's it's it doesn't have anything that it needs to think about it just it thinks it thinks thought um absolutely perfect and self-sufficiently and spontaneous spontaneously like he says um which if is for it, yeah and if for it there are things it doesn't receive from them it doesn't receive the impression of a sheep or a wolf it makes them by its act of thinking yeah. It literally, it literally thinks it into existence, mm-hmm. which is why God is a mind. The mind of there isn't a thing as yes. God. The mind of God is a separate part of God. God is a mind. God is the act of being, and the act of being is the act of thinking. And so all of existence is thought into being in a way, yes. in a way, analogically, of course. But mm-hmm. but yeah, this is how like so uh, the different the different ways of of Aquinas for the existence of God, and again we sort of have this we break being down into these transcendentals is that we see being through different lenses but that we see because in, in god they end up and we'll get into this i guess it'll be next time at this point but in mm-hmm. god they're all the same thing because all those all those perfections they they have converged into just being itself but he is pure act he is necessary being he is pure intelligence he is pure intellection he is perfect intelligibility but like you see he, he is thought he is perfect thought itself which is pure, perfect act which is perfect being so yes god is mind capital m mind yes v mind mm-hmm. and it's, uh, this is not the ontological argument as well it's a yes and that, that's that's the nice thing at the end is, is okay once we go through this and the the claim of kant is that this is somehow relying on the ontological argument and it's and uh, Maritain points out that this is not the case. That we we realize, okay, I think you know, my thought clearly exists. Thought that thought came from somewhere, and then from that I can deduce, okay, what are the properties of that ultimate source of thought? Whereas the ontological argument says, okay, there must be some ultimate source of thought. So like, it kind of goes the other way around. So we, we don't actually have to rely on this idea of, okay, well, I, I can think about a thing that is the ultimate source of thought. So this is the properties that it would have, and it would be perfect. I, because I start from saying, okay, I, I know that I think, and I know that that thought must have a source, just like in the in the argument from from causation. Okay, I, yes. I know that, that that this this thing must be caused by something. There must be a cause. There must be an uncaused cause. This, uh, yeah, this argument starts from uh, not sensible data, but a data immediately and primordially available to us, whereas mm-hmm. the ontological argument necessarily starts with the idea of God and how the idea of God implies necessarily yes. his existence yes. which it does but it doesn't imply his existence in actual it implies his existence if he exists which is a weird way of putting it yes but <laughs> yes <laughs> which but it's true and it's not convincing yeah. unless uh unless you have one of the other ways of getting there and the nice thing about this argument is that you can literally substitute the word being or existence and it still works perfectly it's the different argument. So you could just say mm-hmm. he knows he has existence, but his existence is not perfect. It's limited in all these ways. So he isn't existence itself. He has existence. So how does he have existence? So how does he have it? He must get it from someone who does or something which or something which does have existence. And if you go on on the series, you can either immediately arrive at that which is existence itself or eventually go, well, 
I guess there must be existence itself at the end of the series because it can't go on infinitely because there has to be a reason of being. Right. Which is a nice part of this argument that you, you if you get tripped up by the word thought, uh, you can just substitute it for being or existence. And, and the nice thing is that here, you know, it reveals to us something else about the nature of God. Though, like you said, he's, it, he is perfect. He is pure act, but he is also pure mind. He's also pure intellection. Yes. Yeah, to be act is to be pure, to be pure act is to be pure mind. Yes, which we, yeah. How do I? There's a. I don't. I don't think I'm going to remember the phrase, but if. Yeah, I, I'm not going to remember right now, but I think it was when uh, Edward Fraser's Five Proofs of God, whereas um, if there is such a thing as a mind, it is God, not ours, <laughs> in, in a sense. Right. If it is being itself, which is closer to the idea of a mind than us, because, of course, he is a perfect mind, while mm -hmm. we're not. We're a very limited mind immersed in our materiality. So I am tempted to read all of Sixteen because it is very beautiful. But let's, if you want to go, go ahead and read the whole thing, and we'll just we'll close off with that. Yes, yeah, so yes, because it. it's very very beautiful. It's appropriate to end on a point sixteen, I suppose. Sure. Now, just what has been affected by such reasoning? It has necessarily involved raising to the pure state the analogous and polyvalent object of con of concept thought, and the superior analogate thus attained as absolute thought capital T, infinitely surpasses the concept of thought, lowercase t. Since it is not only thought <laughs> damn, he's going <laughs> to a repetition of words, man. Since it is not only thought but being per se and every perfection belonging to the transcendental order. And since it is all that in absolute simplicity and unity. So thought is being, thought is act, thought is the, every, all the perfections of a transcendental order thought is God. It is what the analogous concept thought signifies, that and infinitely more. St. Thomas's ways do not terminate at a first of a univocal series, at a first cause which would be a thing like other things, a cause like other causes, a being like other beings, greater, higher, more perfect, yet circumscribed as they are by the concept of being. That is why the criticism of them formulated by Monsieur Edouard Lehoy is a veritable ignoratio elenchi. They lead to a first without any common measure with the second and with the whole subsequent series. Uh, to a first separated, isolated, in infinite transcendence. Anoetic intellection crosses the infinite abyss which separates it from everything. But the analogous concept it uses avow at the same time their impotence to a close or delimit the reality they then designate. Ut omne genuflectur, de genuflectatur, which to translate means all will bow. They make God known only by kneeling before him. May, be, may we be permitted to point out what delicacy, what filial fear is apparent in the very word ways used by St. Thomas. These ways are proofs, demonstrations. But when we are dealing with things proportionate with or co-natural to our intelligence, demonstration, while all the while submitting to the object, also in a certain way, subjects the objects subjects the object to our grasps to our means of verification which measure it limit it define it it seizes the object touches it manipulates it judges it this is all the more obvious the more material are the procedures used 
and perhaps scholastics who have inherited a high notion of a chaste science whose very rigor and strict intellectuality derive from a religious aspect, respect, and an exigency for purity in the face of being, and it is their mission to maintain this notion as a sacred good. Perhaps they sometimes forget how charged of materiality have become the words science, demonstration, proof in the usage of the moderns. Ever since thoughts turned above all to the domination of sensible nature and since to verify evokes for modern thought only methods of measurements and laboratory apparatus. When they decline, as they ought, to accept a degraded vocabulary, they run the risk of insufficiently explaining their own terminology. But in any case, they know that to demonstrate the existence of God is neither to subject him to our grasp, nor to define him, nor to seize him, nor to manipulate anything except ideas which are inadequate to such an object, nor to judge anything except our own proper and radical dependence. The procedure by which reason demonstrates that God exists puts reason itself in an attitude of natural adoration and of intellectual admiration. Everything has changed since the Cartesian clear ideas, which dissipated into thin air any ananoetic intellection and any knowledge by analogy. Since then, to enter into mystery by the intellect has become a contradiction in terms. If the Cartesian reason, which wholly suspended from God, does not wish to treat God as a thing subject to it, it must submit to him with closed eyes and only open them when it turns to the created and the finite. It is in this sense that Descartes never treated of the infinite except to submit to it. Hence that great movement of holy flight, which precipitated him towards things below. After him, Malebranche and Leibniz will apply that same reason, which knows only by judging according to its own measure to the justification of God. What had been called natural theology will that henceforth be called theodicy and setting out to comprehend the divine ways in order to render them acceptable will religiously prepare the way for atheism all that he has done is well done because it is he who have done it said christian reason it is he who have done who hath done all since it is well done and since i know why and besides he is bound to do the best says leibnizian optimism materialized and corrupted scholasticism which would not only have seemed impious but absurd to thomas aquinas yeah i'm glad we read that whole thing <laughs> yeah i, I needed to read that whole thing i i can i can stomach cutting any of it out it's just really good um and so and a, a couple of points over there because one of the things i really like is he talks about how how there's this uh what he calls filial fear um in which saint thomas talks about his ways of knowing god the, the five ways and instead of the five proofs for the existence yes. of god um and as he says there's there's this sort of um when you talk about demonstrating something or proving it the idea is you you circumscribe it or you you, you contain it in your discussion and um as opposed to with any of the discussions of of the existence of god everything you do is going to be inferior to that perfection uh, yes. That infinite transcendence. And an noetic intellection, as he says, is itself a kneeling before God. Mm -hmm. It is, this is why the, the idea of it, well, what caused God 
It's the whole criticism. It's he's basically making fun of the what caused cause uh, mm-hmm. cri- uh, criticism in the second paragraph of two three nine, where he says, "Well, the first cause is nothing is a different kind of cause, or its very object is of a whole different order. It is isolated in infinite transcendence. It is ca- uncaused cause, or it is caused by itself. It is not like other things which need a cause for their existence. It is its own justification. It is infinitely transcendental." And we can only get to it by knowledge, by analogy. So we we only know him, they make God known, and a noetic intellection, only by kneeling before him. Such a good quote, too. That's really good. <laughs> they make but, God known only by kneeling before him. But but at the same time, they they are proofs. Like, you know, th- through yes. these ways, we do know the existence of God irrefutably and through the use of reason. It's, it's not... Because when, when, as he talks about, you know, the the way the modern usage sort of happens, and I've I've discussed this with people who have this sort of confusion that don't that you know they hear about uh, the 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 five ways of Saint Thomas, and think of it as like a a kind of a oh that's an interesting thing to think about or a, and instead of a no like th- this is why the church affirms that if you if you say God the existence of God is not knowable by reason let let them be anathema yeah first you, Vatican you, Council if I remember yes, correctly that's right. Um, that no, like the, the, these are these are ironclad proofs that God does in fact exist, as the Church understands Him. Um, and there's there's a there's a a um, humility in the way that these things are phrased, because again, with like it, it is their somewhat, ways. Yeah, but it, it, it in there's a sense. because of uh, how do we put this? The oh, what's the word? A connotation. Yes. Of the word demonstration, as he says, it's material. It subjects the object to us. We are that which rules over that which we are determining. We are judge. We are the judges here. Whereas, in with Saint Thomas, the procedure by which reason demonstrates that God exists puts reason itself in an attitude of natural adoration and of intellectual admiration. And I, and I, I, I love that as well. Yeah, and I think that's fairly important because of his point in the following paragraph, because it's a very subtle difference between what he calls Christian reason and Leibnizian optimism. And it, depending on phrasing, you can, as St. Thomas says, and I believe, is it ante sensor or de veritate? I believe it's de veritate, where it's a small error in the beginning can lead to a huge mistake at the end, mm-hmm. where even if you get the wrong impression and you follow with that wrong impression, you know, you're going to end up very differently. So Christian reason this is worth rereading because it's it. If you you might not get in the first read, Christian reason says that all that he has done, he is God. All that he has done is done well because it is, because it is he who have done it. Leibnizian optimism says uh, it is he who has done all, and since it is well done, and I know why, and besides it, he's bound to do the best. So he's bound to do the best is an afterthought, and I know why it is well done, and then I can say God has done well. It becomes – he's quite correct in saying that theology becomes theodicy for Leibniz and uh, mm-hmm. going on from there because you're say you're trying to justify God by that first finding the natural word, world, justifying the natural world to some sense of reason or ethics instead of – you know, going on to first, what is goodness in itself? Seeing that's coextensive with being, seeing that being, being qua being or being per se, being itself is God, and God is thought. God has all the perfections of the transcendental order, and then saying, well, 
very well, then if the world is created by God, God is goodness itself, that's the nature of God, then I know that it is done well because it is he who hath done it and not something else, not an like a Gnostic Archon or Daimon or whatever terminology, because it is he, he has done well. Whereas the Leibniz says, well, I know these things are good. And then I, and then I, you know, skip a few steps and go to God because I don't have the same idea because I don't think Leibniz had exactly the same idea of God as being something very weird, but kind of similar. It's he's weird. I never really understood Leibniz <laughs> where uh, his monads. I'd never understood monads either. They're bizarre. Anyway, where, you have this idea of, well, things are good, and I know God made them, so therefore, I guess he does well. You know, it's an I guess he did he did pretty good. Yeah. Um, so I think we'll like again we've got we're right at the two hour mark. Yeah. We're a little bit more than halfway through mm. the chapter. I think we'll try and we'll try and finish this up, starting with the divine names, probably sooner rather than later. We'll see what Caleb wants. We might try and blend together for a long release, but I know it's late here and later where you are. The the one thing yeah. I, I want to just I want to just read that sentence again because I I think it really sums up how this whole chapter affected me where he said the procedure by which re reason demonstrates that God exists puts reason itself in an attitude of natural adoration and of intellectual admiration and I getting into into metaphysics and and where the book is going from here which again after this chapter we're going to start getting into into uh, super rational knowledge so we're going to be getting into revelation and and um, mysticism and contemplation, but that I, I definitely feel that, that natural adoration that comes from understanding. And again, he was the word understanding loosely, the, the, the ways in which we can know God through, through reason puts one in a, in a, an attitude of natural adoration. Like I absolutely feel like this, this, and, and as a reminder, adoration in the, in the Christian sense or in the, in the, in the original Catholic sense of the word is that, uh, that that love that is reserved for the triune God. It's it's that that love for the transcendental, for that thing that is mm -hmm. that is all perfect. So when we say when we talk about um, Eucharistic adoration or we talk about adoring God, we talk about that that special kind of love that is entirely reserved for um, for pure act for the 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 pure for um, being Himself and. I'm reading this chapter more and just in general with maritime talks about physics i think it, it strikes me but this chapter definitely put me in that attitude because i think it is yeah. it's, it's, i'm i'm very moved by that that deeper understanding because like you said the we we understand god by kneeling <laughs> before him in this sense like um intellectually yes and i think it, it is so humbling and so beautiful and it and that that's definitely what struck me most in this chapter was that attitude yeah, that attitude is very visible in Maratal, which is a, a very admirable quality in a in a Catholic writer. Mm -hmm. To be able to, even in a very intellectual academic book, uh, to be able to pass that attitude on is very impressive and even admirable in the sense that it makes me want to do that in whatever professional environment or academic environment I work in. Because it does seem at least somewhat possible to do so. Even, you know, you wouldn't think of, an academic book of epistemology would have that much uh that much to say on i suppose revering or respecting god and he doesn't say that much on it it's just his entire attitude about it mm -hmm. no absolutely beautiful so i think um yeah we'll, we'll leave off there We'll mm -hmm. pick up and finish this chapter shortly and then uh like i said hopefully this will only, it'll be a week turnaround on this or something like that but um, I know it's late for both of us. 
any yeah, any final comments? Uh, so far, well, let me see. Well, I know the next time we're going to get into the divine names and a lot into the super analogy of faith, I believe, and we're going to get into a lot of uh, very nitty gritty of anonoetic intellection, which is more than I ever thought I would know. Oh, well, and also the uh, the nature of personality. Oh yeah, that was that was the most that was what stuck most most stuck yes. with me. That's what I'm most looking forward to rereading and taking notes and discussing. It's his, I suppose, intuitive argument for why the Trinity works because that's what it is at, mm -hmm. at the heart of it is, or at least that's what my main takeaway, or that's the most practical aspect for a Christian philosopher, someone who likes Christian philosophy, is that is his argument and his. Uh, observations about personality and immateriality and the limitations of materiality on personality. So that's what I'm most looking forward to. But if I had, I guess, one thing to really stick with this chapter would be how being is itself and multiple, how being is how the transcendentals, the super universals are coextensive with, it, with each other and therefore each different modes of perceiving the same thing and how all of those are at the same time or how do I are being itself and everything therefore participates or has being, but it is not being. That's the main point of the chapter aside from the categorization of dianoetic, paranoetic, cananoetic. That's I think the important thing to take away from is his arguments concerning being. All right. Um, always a pleasure, Bulge. We will do this again very mm -hmm. soon. Hopefully. Thank you, everyone, for, for listening to this. We're going to keep doing them, whether you're listening or not, because I'm enjoying this book a lot, and it's nice to be able to, to uh, have, a, have a, um, a motivator to keep me reading what is a, what is a difficult text oh, yeah. and uh, a chance to, uh, to discuss it. So we will see you guys next time, and yeah, later. Thank you.